Hello and welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Gasowski here with my favorite critic and co-host, Courtney Small. Hello, how are you today? Good, how are you? Not too bad. Good. So today, we've got a lot of movies that are opening up and special events and lots of stuff going on. So, let's just start at the beginning. (laughs) Yes, the best place to start. (laughs) All right. Let's start with uh, Michael Winterbottom's film, Greed. It's opening... uh, on March the 6th across Canada, including Toronto. It's going to be at the Scotiabank and the Canada Square, Carlton, and it's going to be in Whitby as well. So Michael Winterbottom's film Greed uh, focuses on this uh, British retail tycoon, not based on anybody real, but it's this fictional tycoon played by Steve Coogan. Uh, Winterbottom and Coogan, uh, you know, have had a number of collaborations, and so this is the latest. And it is the most biting comedic satire. Uh, and this one really skewers the fashion industry, the fast fashion industry, which is you know, different. This is the one, you know, like um, I'm thinking, oh, of course, my my brain went. Oh, the Oak Tour, the um, like the Vogues, the Alexander McQueens. Oh, I thought this was more like the you know the the basic. You, you go to, I can't think of a company to to name. You go and it's like it doesn't last very long. It doesn't last you years. It's like it ends up in landfills like really quickly. Yeah, but I think he's his his portrayal is very much he he's high end. In terms of how he sells his stuff, I don't know if it's necessarily the best quality. That, actually, you're but, right. Yeah. You're right. You're right. And and he has pretensions. Like he ha he his industry goes you know, it over a number of different kinds of uh, fashion places, and um, but like his his jewel, the jewel in his crown is this sort of like high end fashion house, right? That mm-hmm. that he founded. Anyway. All those details aside, uh, the film takes place in a sort of a multiple time period structure going back and forth, uh, present, past, future, not future, <laughs> sorry, present, past, uh, and trying to give you the, like, the full and complete story of this guy's rise and fall. And that's not, I'm not giving anything away by, by saying rise and fall. Um, and the whole thing is centered around a very highly publicized 60th birthday party, which he's chosen the island of Mykonos. And there's all sorts of ridiculousness that happens in the organizing of this extraordinarily lavish affair. Uh, and it really goes from, like, the ridiculous to, like, beyond the sublime beyond the ridiculous, uh, these details, right? Um, but at the same time that the film is skewering this man and people like him and like, you know, the lives of the extraordinarily rich, uh, it finds a way to give us incredible insights into the lives of people that are not necessarily what you'd think would be directly involved but end up being through a series of events. And I really like the way the film like charts out the way the consequences of this on regular people or in the fa- case of the fashion industry the extremely poor people in places like sri lanka that have to actually sew these clothes uh so you know it's 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 kind of complicated it's very scathing uh, but in the end it's uh it's it's an incredibly uh, satirical but 
I like the fact that it gives you a lot to think about and it holds people to task, you know? It holds all of us to task. Yes, I I really enjoyed this film. I think the, the humor and the satire is great. I, I will say the one quibble I have with it is, as you touched on, it, it talks about a lot of the the people, how should we say, underneath these fashion moguls, these, these uber-rich people, the people that have basically done the hard work that have helped these people become filthy, filthy rich. But there's a particular thread that occurs in, when they're talking about the... Um, the, I guess, factory workers in Sri Lanka that are working for essentially pennies to make all these high-end things that I felt they could have done a better job of weaving in earlier because by the time it gets to the end, it hits you with a lot of facts, you know, and you're supposed to really feel like the the gravity of what these workers are going through. But I felt like I didn't spend enough time with them because we spend so much time in... Um, the the world of Richard, the, the character that mm-hmm. Coogan plays, that it's the film takes so much joy in skewing the uber rich. And there's many times where you could watch this film and see allusions to Trump, because oh, there's yeah, a section definitely. where Richard, even though he, you know, was quote unquote self made, he came from a fairly well off family, went to a prestigious boarding school where he didn't do too well, but then he just was a hustler and he kept selling himself and nickel and diming everyone to get to the top. But also the way that um, he made money. Mm-hmm. Like the scheme, when when it get, gets to the actual explanation of the the schemes that he used, used and the way he wasn't actually investing his own money. Yep. That, I mean, when it gets to that nitty-gritty, that's really fascinating. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. And it, and that reminded me of Trump. Definitely uh, Trump. And it's also uh, done in a very amusing way. It's just I felt like there's a certain point where the film starts to hit on the factory workers, the assistants, the people that are help building him up while still kind of skewing him, him, him. And then you get to a point where it gets really heavy. And I just felt like it doesn't quite... Um, earn that part like the ending felt like here's what you should know and what you should really think about which is great but then they give you all these facts and stats and it's like oh i would have wished to have seen a little bit more of that weave really? into the film really? I, I, so. I didn't have that reaction because i i thought that in building him up and building up the ridiculous it's the level of ridiculousness i think that it hit i was ready for those facts by the time they came mm-hmm. and that i did feel that you know, I got a little bored. It's about midway. There was a lag where, you know, the Trump connections are firing in my head and, the you know, and it's sort of like, I get it, I get it. But the film still keeps skewering. And that's the point where I thought, okay, now I feel like I'm in the room with Trump and his whole family. Because, in fact, the entire movie is populated with these ridiculous people. And then, as you say, it starts to other, like, Normal people, <laughs> real people, people that are sympathetic start start to come in. Um, that I was actually grateful that th- this was happening, and I um, in retrospect, I'm wondering if it's built up that way, and that that contributed to the elation I felt at the end, because there's a payback. There, there is the payback for him. That's, I didn't feel elation at, uh, mm-hmm. at the actual real world stats that the film was, was giving you. But there was this sense of elation 
at the way that finally everything that Winterbottom had built up, everything clicks and the gears start going and everything that he's, he's built up just starts to go. And it takes off like, like a well-oiled machine, you know, and it goes to its inevitable conclusion, which made me cheer. Interesting, because for me, the I was with this film all the way up to the end, like I, and I still understand why they did it, and mm-hmm. I understand the message that they're trying to get across, and I'm all for that message. And I think Coogan does such a good job of just giving you the one-liners, just being pompous, and yeah, you know, he's really um, good. Elsa Fisher <laughs> as his ex-wife, and just you know the cast is is great, but there's a thread with um, Nick, who's the Biographer, who's yeah. I guess basically putting this video together that will be played at his, you know, Roman theme, um, Greek, bir- Greek, Greek, Greek theme, tragedy <laughs> uh, birthday party where the, where they're building a coliseum just because he's got enough money to to <laughs> do that. Building a fake coliseum. <laughs> and there's parts where, with the biographer, you you get the the real moments and you start to see glimpses of what the actual workers had to deal with when dealing with him. I was like, I want a little bit more of that. Like, I didn't necessarily need you to spend time. You didn't think that came in soon. Like, I thought that came, when it started to come in, I thought, oh, now here's something interesting. That's well, what kept me going but was the, that I guy. I think with that, like, he was interesting. But then we also had to deal with the workers building the Coliseum. And I felt like that whole threat could have been eliminated because when they bring in the the refugees who are on the the island where this party is being held that was more fascinating to me mm-hmm. and especially how they eventually get weaved into this party and when that was more fascinating than the the workers trying to build this coliseum to scale but and didn't that introduce you to the to the fact right that there's this vast difference between that crazy man and his crazy it their experience illuminated like there were times when it was funny satirical and funny, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that that introduced you to the concept that this guy is like, if the concept of having a, a party on Mykonos was not crazy enough mm-hmm. with a Greek the- tragedy kind of theme, um, wasn't enough, that the experience of these workers, that, that that introduced it so that when that starts to turn and it's not so funny anymore, and then it allowed... Uh, it's almost like it allowed Winterbottom to fold in other characters and other experiences, you know, um, as he's shifting the mood. But I would counter that by saying that you have enough other people. So there's, there's the in- individuals that Nick interviews, and they give you the real version of what he's like to work under. You also have the the refugees that add an interesting layer, and then you have the assistants. You know, and and one of which whose mother is directly tied to one of his factories. So I thought, like, you had enough individuals to to bring that side, that weight. Um, But when you every time they had to cut to the Coliseum building and the one guy that's stressed about I'm going to get fired, I felt like that was just a waste because it took away time that could have been spent on all these other characters. Interesting, because I thought that that kept up. The theme, like the the ridiculous theme, the you know, don't forget this is this party is out of control. This party is mm-hmm. crazy. This party, look at what this guy's coming up with. And the only quibble I would have is that while that shows you, you know, you go to a Greek island and you build a coliseum, 
like the Greeks had, right? Um, a fake Colosseum like the Greeks had. Like, that is ridiculous enough. But then the only quibble I have is there's this thing that starts happening in his, like, when it's revealed his relationship with one of his sons. And that son is extraordinarily unhappy with his dad. And really bored with this whole thing, and he's he's only like the only person in the family who actually seems to get that this is ridiculous. My quibble is that he's the one that starts quoting Greek tragedy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the quibble because it's like I, I, we get that. That's why the Colosseum's there. That's why the fake Colosseum's there. We get that. We don't need this kind of little bit of extra heavy-handed. Just in case you didn't get it, director's note. You know. Yeah. And and that that becomes a key factor in the ending. Um, th- these references he's making. Yeah, right? there's a lot of gladiator references, and we, we haven't even mentioned. There's like this whole other thread. There's a lot going on in this film. Yeah. As, so, as, see, as much as I as I much as I recommend it and I enjoy it, there's also the reality TV thread where the film is skewing reality television, and especially a lot of those reality television romances where, you know, it's supposed to be quote unquote real life, but you have these people who are clearly actors that can't remember their lines and one woman's trying to be a method actor while doing a but reality, being a reality show. show yeah and you, i mean that's the, that in itself could have been its own little movie it's entertaining as as part I of the grand it, scheme i think of it thing, just but. added to the whole cuz eventually it just looked like started to actually become a circus mm-hmm. a metaphorical you know it's like almost literal circus it's like eventually that that was the only thing that kept me going was that it built to this extraordinary pitch of circus like craziness and then it, the the fascinating fact was the way it started to shift mm. away from the circus like you think that that might be the the end that you want to reach but in fact no that's the turning point as soon as i realized it was the circus things started to change and and I think that's when I was ready as a viewer to take in something a little more serious when he starts introducing more serious mm-hmm. themes and characters and stories. It stays it stays comedic oh, yeah. in a biting, it, it, biting it does way. Pretty much to the last 10 minutes or so, I just felt like they, they could have introduced the serious aspects a little more so that when it does hit, it feels a little more rewarding. Because for me personally, it just felt like, I was, you know, with it, laughing at the satire, satire. Yes, this guy is ridiculous. The whole thing is silly. And then it's, you must think about this. I was like, oh, well, I was kind of but thinking. But isn't that just sports. added in the credits? Yeah, but I mean, like, it could have been. Like, the end of the story, I was, like, I'm sorry, but the end of this this particular story of this particular individual, how the party ends up, I was completely in line with it. I was, like I said, almost cheering, which may give you, once you see the film, give you an insight into how horrible I am as a human being, but he was, he's more horrible. So that's, yeah, I just, that's I what just the felt movie that is for, right? It could have been earned a bit better had I had more time with some of those Interesting. characters. But Interesting. I still recommend it. It's still a very entertaining film. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a matter of, of degrees with us, mm-hmm. isn't it? But it, yeah, we both agree. It's a very interesting film. So that's Greed, Michael Winterbottom's yep. latest <laughs> film, starring Steve Coogan. And uh, we have to give credit to Steve Coogan. He's um, he's quite the character. Uh, so the next film is Sorry We Missed You. And uh, this is um, 
uh, a different for us. We have to shift gears a little bit here now because it's a Ken Loach film, and as a lot of people know, we're shifting gears because Ken Loach um, is not known. He he deals with working class people. He tells working class stories um, about the impact of certain things, about the impact of society, life, you know, economies. Uh, in this case, the gig economy, how it's affecting this one working class family and uh, lets you see consequences as well. So, I mean, it's not completely um, devoid of the same kind of thematics that Michael Winterbottom's Greed is. Right? I actually think all the films that we're discussing today have uh, a similar theme yeah. throughout. We didn't plan this. They're all, it's, it's just one of those, if you were going to do a triple bill, <laughs> they all have pretty much the same theme, just approached uh, slightly differently. Yeah. So Ken Loach, um, he's, uh, again, he's, he's uh, giving us a naturalistic kind of film, a slice of life film. Um, that is very serious, and like I said, it's it's about a man and his uh, family. So Ricky, Abby, and their two children, and Rick uh, t- takes a job. Well, doesn't take a job. He sort of agrees to participate in this sort of job that is part of the gig economy, which is you know you are, you work for yourself. There's no there's a company that you sort of sign up with, but they have no responsibility to you. Um, it doesn't matter what happens to you. You are responsible for, you know, the tasks that you take on in this economy. Yeah, I think like Uber driver or Amazon delivery driver, like those yeah. independent kind of contractors, um, contractors, right? if you if you want to even use that word in this particular film. Well, he, he does have a contract. Yeah, it's it's questionable, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I felt like. Okay, it is questionable. I'm not going to ruin that. Never mind. <laughs> um, but, you know, I find that this is in keeping with Ken Loach's vision. It's, you know, it's a film that, because of the naturalistic kind of way that he approaches life, but it's a very compassionate way that he approaches his characters. So that makes it really easy. Um, what happens to Ricky and his family, it's it's like a downward kind of spiral that uh, things come out of the blue. I mean, so... It's it's not like the most predictable film, which is like really wonderful about it. Um, but you can see, you know, certain things, and uh, it's the effects of you know living paycheck to paycheck and mm-hmm. and really not having any leeway in terms of what they're earning and and what their aspirations are versus what life's possibilities is giving them, even though this job promises to give him sort of an insight into the future. It's a job of the future. It, you know, it, it's promising in a way at the beginning, but we start to go in, down this rabbit hole and this is sort of cycle. It's like the sense of entrapment and stuff. And and it's the humanity that that is always at the heart of, of a Ken Loach film that really um, makes this like I couldn't – once I was in, that's it. I couldn't take my eyes off of it and I was there. You know, I just like was completely drawn in. I I enjoyed this film. Uh, it's it's weird to say, and I think it's partly because Ken Loach has so many great films. Is I enjoyed this film, but it, it I don't know if I'd rank it up there with my favorite Ken Loach. And, no, no, I I, I and, enjoyed the film, but I agree. Yeah, with you. it and it's odd because this one I feel is like really in touch with 
our, you know, our world and our economy today and mm-hmm. how we have companies like Uber and Amazon and in theory are providing employment in their own ways to millions of people worldwide. But then when you actually start to hear about the conditions and what legal ramifications they're not covering, you, you start to realize, well, maybe these companies aren't as great as they say they are. And so in this case, he's a, a driver. He's supposed to be you know, making his own hours, you know, working for delivery in the company. And he's, he's led to believe that you you are your own boss. But then as things evolve, we realize, like, no, you, he's still part of the company. And when things don't work out so well, the company doesn't have his back. You know, and no, because that's when the company says, "No, no, you're a contractor." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're, you're when things are going well, so, you're part of the family, and when things are bad, nope, that's your, your exactly. Family, which yeah. is which was the thing that I think um, I liked so much about the film was the fact that like, we all use these apps and we all use Uber and we, you know, we 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 interact with drivers all the time, but I don't know how many of us actually realize the full impact that this these this kind of job, this kind of economy is having mm. on individual lives. Uh, and it's going to affect each and every one of us in a way. Yeah, when we order, like, skip the dishes and whatnot, you don't really think about the driver or what they're making, how much they have to pay in their own overhead, the cost of their own gas, what have you. you the just, hassle thing. You just think, well, it's, you know, the company is taking care of it for you and whatnot. And it's very powerful in the sense that we, we're a society of debt. You know, where yeah. as much of all the advancement in technology, what have you, there's a lot more debt. As you said, people living paycheck to paycheck, and this family you know, can't even live paycheck to paycheck. Like, they, they're so far in debt, not necessarily because they were like, bad people or anything. It's no, just no. society has not, you know, been kind to them, and they're trying to get through. So it resonates. The performances are, are really, yes, really good. Yeah. And, but again, because Ken Loach does this kind of natural style, and it happens with so many of his films. Like I'm trying to think of the last Ken Loach film where I walked away feeling happy. No, you don't. <laughs> and it, it's been a while. Like I know I Daniel. You Blake. always feel enlightened, right? Yeah, there's I mean, there's certain ones that have humor. I, I Daniel Blake has some moments, but you have to go into the past. He yeah. used to weave in humor, even like sometimes dark humor, but sometimes light, right? Mm-hmm. Used to do that more in the past, and and his, you know, maybe it's a reflection on how he sees the world, or maybe it's a reflection on the world, and like. It would be interesting to ask him if if he feels like this is happening in his films more, the darkness is happening more because that's all he sees. Yeah, possibly. And again, it's a it's a good film. It's just it's one of those things where I walked away going, "Wow, that was a really good film." But it didn't like hit me the way like Sweet Sixteen did a few years ago, and some of his other ones where you just like you feel gutted. This one was like, "Oh, this was it's a good film." You know, yeah. it gave me some stuff to think about. Well, that's interesting. I felt kind of gutted. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, but I still felt like, okay, this is not Ken Loach. That is absolute brilliant best. Mm-hmm. But a very good Ken yeah, Loach yeah, is still we, an excellent we, we, Yes, we should preface that. Like, you know, for us saying, oh, you know, it wasn't his best, that's still really good in comparison <laughs> yeah. to most filmmakers. Yeah, it's still really worthwhile to see this film. And, you know, like I said, it really draws you in. So, uh, you know, I think we both recommend Sorry We Missed You by Ken Loach, and that's opening on March the 6th as well. And so there's what the other thing that's happening, not just, you know, uh, theatrical releases, but there's, uh, you know, a special event going on in Toronto. And uh, the Goethe Institute of Toronto, 
they are presenting a series of films. Uh, t- they do this periodically, and it's always with a theme. And this, the theme this time is 100 Years of Spy Thrillers, which, uh, I, you know, I just don't know anybody who doesn't like spy, a spy thriller in one way or another. And there's so many different ways you can, you can present a spy thriller. So uh, they've chosen three films. And the first one is on March the 10th at the t- they're all all the screenings are at the Lightbox in Toronto. The first one is on the 10th and it's Fritz Lang's genre defining silent film Spies. And the second film is an East German film. It's uh, a lot of critics described it as a sort of an answer to James Bond. Mm-hmm. And and uh, that's on March the 12th called Four Eyes Only. And uh, the final film of this series by the Goethe Institute is the North American premiere of Philippe Leinman's Blame Game. Mm-hmm. And that's on March the 17th. And all the films are going to be shown in German with English subtitles. And uh, you had a chance to check out Blame Game. Yes, I saw Blame Game. It's um, it's an interesting film. It's I kind of want to compare it to 24, but if 24 had slow burn moments... <laughs> Because, you know, 24 is very much go, 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 Jack yeah. Bauer thing. Or So in this film, it, it follows a, um individual, Martin, who's working for the German intelligence agency. And he's a agent that I guess they're trying to go after a particular terrorist, the Middle Eastern terrorist who they has been linked to um, attacking U.S. targets and what have you. And he's is one of those agents that kind of blurs the lines in terms of policy. So, for example, they have an individual who's coming in trying to get a, I guess, citizenship or go through the, the proper channels, and he's the interpreter. So what the actual government, his fellow agent, is saying, well, you know, we need this type of documentation. But what he's actually telling the guy is, so you're friends with so-and-so, <laughs> yeah. who's a driver for this, you know, and... If you don't tell us this information, we'll tell your village back home that you did X, Y, and Z. Like, you know, he's very much a a guy that doesn't play by the rules. And, you know, he's he's having an affair with a local journalist and just one of those kind of, you know, typical macho guys that you would expect to see in this type of film. But, the spy thriller guy, right? Yeah, the spy thriller guy plays by his own rules. And then things happen, and the group that he's going after – they essentially retaliate and one of the deaths hits a little close to home and it's a moment that that guts him emotionally but as he starts to really investigate further he starts to realize that you know there's actually individuals within the german government and you know powerful corporations that have a vested interest in keeping things the way they are so it really turns out to be a film about this guy finding out that sometimes when it comes to war, the people that are profiting the most are the people that you are sworn to protect mm. uh, and that kind of thing. So there's a, there's a big social commentary in this film. So there, there are moments of action. You know, if you want to see shootouts and stuff, this film has that. But it's also a very kind of slow burn in terms of as you're following him and he's slowly starting to realize that things aren't exactly cut and dry. Yeah, it's very suspenseful. So. Yeah, he doesn't, you know, the sides, he starts to slowly realize, like, the, the sides aren't exactly 
how he thinks they are. Right. Um, and, you know, there's also individuals that are purposely making it difficult for him to do his job as effectively as he as he wants. Mm-hmm. So but by the end, he's his eyes are opened to the world. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but there is a lot of interesting commentary on who profits off of war and how, especially when it comes to, like, weapons. You know, we, we, we've talked on the show before about, like, the Syrian crisis and how it's a almost like a secular, a secular event yes, where yes. they're fleeing because of all the nonstop violence and bombing and house. But then you're like, well, who's providing the yeah. different groups with the weapons? Well, they're coming from North America. They're coming from exactly. different places, right? Yeah. So it's that's this type of film. Wow. While still being a fairly, you know, intense spy thriller. Wow. Okay. So that's Blame Game. And Blame Game, like I said, is part of the Good to Films series of 100 Years of Spy Thrillers at the Tip Bell Lightbox. Blame Game is showing on March the 17th. So um, also, since we're talking about the Bell Lightbox, this is uh, something that uh, the Cinematheque at TIFF is putting on. And it is, you guys have to, you know, excuse me, but this is at the end of this series. Um, and there's there's two films that are, you know, as they're coming to the end of the series, these two films are being repeated because they're just, they're classics of cinema, but they're also classics of this filmmaker. And it's Robert Bresson. And the series is called The Poetry of Precision, the films of Robert Bresson. He is uh, a master of minimalism, precision, though the way that that he focuses on minute details and the way that he he just structures just even a shot a sequence of shots you know a sequence where he's he's focusing on these these small movements these small details there's a kind of poetry that comes out of that um that you really have to experience because um th- this this poetry that emerges it's it's kind of like he enlivens the smallest of gestures and the precision with which he puts shots together, they, like an entire sequence, is breathtaking. And it sounds like, you know, I'm saying, oh, you know, it's a very, like, boring, slow, it's like all minor, you know, minute details. And it's not because things move so quickly. There's so much suspense within moments, within gestures, within, uh, you know, one gesture to another one that yeah, I just can't think of another word but you know cinematic poetry it's it's um it's just so effortless in his hands and watching it as a viewer because he is able to guide your eye so masterfully it doesn't feel like work you're just drawn in and then next thing you know you're watching these things and you never you've never experienced anything like that you've never experienced life like that a simple simple movement of you know well one of the films is pickpocket and the simple movements of a hand just moving and pickpocketing mm-hmm. becomes this this incredible moment you know and um so pickpocket is showing on saturday march the 7th um, in the evening, seven ten p.m. And this film, uh, b- besides making me wax poetic, it's had an incredible influence on a lot of 
like a huge variety of filmmakers, like Martin Scorsese, Chantal Ackerman, Louis Malle, Paul Schrader. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, this is this film. Both of the films I want to talk about that are are showing at the end of this series. They're both legendary. So Pickpocket, like I said, is on Saturday, and uh, yeah, you're following a man who is a pickpocket but it's it's the way he views the world and the way he views himself within the world his relationship to the world that's all is as interesting as the way that Brasson presents these moments you know of his and his story um the other film is actually showing on March the 6th in the afternoon so I don't know if it's too late for you to to skip work Colin <laughs> Colin sick but it's uh it's showing at uh 4.30 in the afternoon, a man escaped. And this this is like the pinnacle of the cinema of Robert Bresson. Um, it's, it's a story based on um, a French resistant leader's account of his escape from a Nazi prison. And it's taking place just hours before he's about to be executed. So in terms of the, the suspense of the story, um, it, it's quite incredible, really. Um, but the rigor with which Bresson shows you this kind of almost miraculous escape, the only thing that's going to you know alleviate your suspense is knowing that he's escaping. <laughs> but mm-hmm. but getting there, you know, and watching these moments, it's it's extraordinary. And uh, I think these two films really like for anybody who loves cinema, they're. Uh, very rewarding and just a beautiful thing. Yeah, I've I've seen Pickpocket and I I love that film, but uh, Man Escape I have not, so I will make sure I get down to that one. There you go. Okay, that's it for Frameline for this week. I think Courtney and I have given you a lot to think about. Oh yeah, plenty to see, watch, and talk about. Yeah, lots of exciting stuff. So thanks for listening. <laughs>